And today I have uh, Nemez Yodiamene with me, who is um, a nephrologist um, who I've had the, um, I've been fortunate enough to work with in the past. Um, and he's going to be talking to us about uh, a few things, hypertension and renal failure. To uh, give this little, you know, talk, um, hopefully we could share some useful tips for our folks back home. Yeah, but um, my name is Naimizio Diemene. Um, most people know me by Mela um, back in FEC. Um, I, um, I did my med school in Russia. I was uh, fortunate to get uh, the Federal Government Scholarship. So I did my training there and moved to the U.S. in 2006. Um, did a three-year uh, residency program in internal medicine and after that uh, a nephrology fellowship and um i'm a i'm a general nephrologist um with emphasis on hypertension and uh chronic kidney disease um i'm also a dialysis expert um i'm i'm happy to be here thank you all right thanks mela i'll just i'll just go with mela for now uh thanks for joining us today so today we're just going to be talking a lot about or more focusing on hypertension and renal failure which i think are two of the biggest problems in 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 africa in nigeria in general um i think it's underappreciated how these um diseases are primarily hypertension uh leads to um morbidity and uh, mortality so um if you just We'll start off with hypertension and then we'll come to renal failure because one can lead to the other. And um, she just kind of give like a, a little uh, talk on what hypertension is and its prevalence, especially in Nigeria and how how important it is in general to know about it. Okay, thank you. Well, l- let me um, let me start by describing renal failure, chronic kidney disease, and. Um, uh, sort of eventually uh, arrive at hypertension as being one of the most common and prevalent causes of renal failure. Um, there are two types of kidney failures, generally speaking. There is acute and there is chronic. Acute kidney failure or acute kidney injury is thought to um, occur over hours, um, to days or, or weeks. Uh, it's it's most, mostly reversible. Um, it could happen from, you know, maybe massive fluid loss, massive blood loss, uh, acute diarrheal illness, you know, which could cause a transient reduction in kidney function. Uh, but if you treat the causative agent, um, the kidney function will be restored, and that is acute. Versus uh, chronic kidney disease, CKD, um, it's more, uh, you know, chronic, uh, slow, insidious, um, happening over months to years. Um, it's this, the, defined as a, a, a drop in kidney function below 60% or and over a period of three months. Or if there's a structural, um, I guess, um, defect in the kidney function. Um, now, we do know that uh, CKD is uh, is pre- prevalent. The prevalence based on studies from home range anywhere from 10% to about 13% among the population, especially uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and most of the low to middle income countries. Um, so if you take out Nigeria in particular uh, population, I know it's more than 200 million, uh, 240 maybe, but if you take a, a rough estimate of 200 million, and um, 10% of that population will be 20 million. So that means there are about roughly 20 million Nigerians living with different uh, stages of chronic kidney disease. And there are five stages of that. Stages one, two, often referred to as mild chronic kidney disease, or mild kidney failure, stages three, uh, moderate kidney failure, and stage four, severe. Uh, Stage five, uh, very severe. Below stage five, um, if it goes further that, then that becomes end-stage kidney disease, ESRD or ESKD, often requiring either transplantation or dialysis. Based on uh, what, 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 what causes CKD, um, in our part of the world, number one cause is, is high blood pressure, so hypertension, followed closely by a group of conditions known as glomerulonephritis. It just refers to inflammation of uh, the glomerulus, which is a part of the, of the functional unit of the kidney. Uh, it's mostly caused by infectious 
uh, agents, you know, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, uh, malaria, HIV, AIDS. Uh, so number one, uh, etiology, hypertension. Number two, um, um, glomerulonephritis. Number three, uh, diabetes. Then further down, you would have uh, other agents, like, other causes like, uh, um, you know, use of um, herbal preparations and concoctions, or even uh, pain medications, especially the, the group called NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or so ibuprofen, Motrin, Aleve, um, uh, indolatacin, sodium, and different three names, you know, painkillers. Um, and then obviously there are also other, other remote causes, um, maybe lupus, lupus nephritis, you know, sickle cell, or even use of bleaching creams. All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, use of bleaching creams, this is the first time I'm hearing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, um, you know, those, um, some of those bleaching creams are tainted with all sorts of things, you know, even some heavy metals like mercury, you know, or even lead, which over time can lead to chronic but uh, short deterioration in kidney function and eventually kidney failure. Mm. And how about some of the ingredients we use in our, like, spices or cooking? Mm. Um, you know, there have been associations, um, I think it's called MHG, um, or MSG, monosodium glutamate, you know, additives that you get in things like uh, Nong uh, or even Maggi and a few other things that we use for cooking. You know, if taken in considerable quantities over a long period of time, it could lead to something called allergic intestinal nephritis, which is, you know, basically influx of uh, inflammatory cells in the kidney and, you know, slow or short uh, attack on the kidney and drop in kidney function. So yeah, that is, they, they surely have been publications um, describing such. Well, what are the signs that, you know, you know, the different stages, what signs do you have, do people get or have or symptoms that do they have when they have this beginning to start up um, the early signs of CKD? Yeah, that um, it's, you know, CKD is often a silent disease. So that's the, that's the dilemma, you know, convincing people that you have a potentially uh, serious condition, potentially life altering condition, that doesn't manifest until much later, maybe stages four or five. So usually stage, uh, let's, let's the, the, just so we'll attach some numbers to the stages, right? So kidney function, you know, if you evaluate kidney function by using two, mostly two, two lab uh, uh, values, serum creatinine and uh, EGFR. So looking at the EGFR, if the EGFR is uh, above 90%, that's a stage one kidney disease. Uh, basically there's nothing wrong with the kidneys. You, know, you may have a, a leak of protein or blood in the urine here and there, you know, at stage one, uh, but it's all uh, invisible to the naked eye. Stage two, you know, basically EGFR between 60 to 89%. Um, again, normal functioning kidneys uh, without symptoms. So stages one and two, uh, what you have is just lab abnormalities without accompanying symptoms. Uh, stages three, um, you know, between 30 to about uh, 59%, you might have, you know, increased incidence of uh, high blood pressure. So one symptom could be, you know, all of a sudden you're diagnosed with high blood pressure. Uh, at a younger age, in your 30s, in your 40s, um, you may have mild swelling around the ankles. You may have uh, maybe increased urination. For those who are still in a, uh, more substantial amount of protein in the urine, they may uh, start to notice that the urine is foamy and frothy. Uh, or some others may actually have an acute episode of glomerulonephritis, in which case they will go to the bathroom and a few times they will notice uh, what is described as a tea colored or Coca Cola colored urine. So that urine, you know, that goes away, comes back, you know, every now and then. Um, at stages five, four and five, you know, you get more prominent manifestations of uh, food wound swelling of, of the feet, the ankles all the way to the legs, you may uh, get unexplained fatigue, tiredness, um, stages five, where your kidney function has dropped below 15%, and obviously you're gonna get more short of breath. Uh, so basically you get um, short of time with just minimal activity. Um, you also may start to notice loss of um, mental activity, loss of concentration, reversal of um, sleep cycle, um, you know, poor taste of food, uh, chronic nausea, especially early in the morning, vomiting, loss of weight, you know, becomes more prominent, you know, where you're just wasting away. And, uh, you know, before you know it, that's when most people crash into healthcare facilities at home. And, uh, you know, you hear the news, oh yeah, this person needs dialysis. Uh, but this, it takes years to get there, uh, months sometimes. Yeah, so these are some of these uh, signs and symptoms. And are there ways to, you know, in a resource limited place like Nigeria or other African countries, are there ways to kind of keep an eye on your blood test, especially if you have hypertension, to see if you're progressing? And where would you, would you want to keep an eye on? Sure, yeah, there are, there are definite ways, yeah. Um, I, I mean, we have to start by uh, a culture shift, you know. Most people don't believe that it's their portion that certain things will happen to them. Uh, most people don't see value in preventative care. For example, um, getting a primary care 
physician going, even if nothing is wrong, at least once a year for your annual checkups, uh, which will include full body uh, exams and uh, blood work. Um, that's surely a way to pick up something earlier. And actually, you know, as a setting uh, where we know dialysis is unaffordable, uh, we know transplantation is highly limited. The most cost-effective way to deal with this uh, healthcare uh, epidemic is is by early diagnosis. Um, so how can you diagnose it early? You know, again, if you have that culture where you are going for preventative uh, care, so prevention is better than cure, you could pick it up early. Uh, blood work, you know, yeah. So um, there's actually a push to um, sort of make sure that most uh, standard lab facilities these days have software inbuilt in their labs where they can automatically measure this EGFR of a thing other than the, the creatinine, the blood creatinine. Um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, your creatinine is normal value in most places is 0.6, maybe to 1.2. Uh, but at a creatinine of 1.2, 1.3, uh, your kidney function may have actually dropped substantially. So there is a push now for most labs to uh, automatically report uh, EGFR as part of the, the labs that they, they give out. That way, if you if all of a sudden everything looks fine, but you see your EGFR of 84, um, you know that well, 84, 82, uh, you know, it's, it's low, you may not have symptoms. So that's that's easily a stage two, you know. But the question issue trigger is why is it constant consistent? You know, is it is it because uh, is it from increased muscle mass, for example? You know, there's such a thing, or is it uh, early stages of something else, you know? Uh, so it's best to catch it there, you know, in the 80s and 70s rather than in the 30s or 20s or near or when it's time for dialysis. Yeah, so um, that's one way is, um, you know, this has uh, enforcing this. Um, culture of uh, preventative care, uh, proper and early diagnostics will make a whole difference. Sounds great. But this is not something where you have to check your, get that blood work done like every month or something, once a year enough or twice a year enough. You know, for people who are healthy, you know, uh, no, no medical conditions. Um, I think once a year, annual checkup and annual blood work will be fine. You know, if you have been diagnosed with chronic kidney disease, um, then it will require more frequent check-ins at regular intervals. You know, the guidelines out there is uh, for stages uh, three and st- for stage three, for example, you should at least uh, have a checkup at least twice a year, every six months, including blood work. For stage four, uh, you know, it requires more frequent checks. You know, every 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 three months, stage five, for instance, more more often than that, maybe even monthly. Yeah, uh, you know, depending on one's level of health literacy, you can either do this blood work by yourself if you have the means to interpret it, um, or you just you know find it. Doctor, you know, the provider who can do this, this monitor it, and more importantly, you know, let's uh, get in the habit of asking questions. You know, we are our own best advocate. If you ask why is this that, that way, why is this that the other way, uh, we should. One thing also that we can all control is, you know, we can all, all we can all get blood pressure uh, machines at home and get into the habit of checking it. Uh, I know it's not <laughs> practical to check daily for most of us who are busy, but we could at least check it once a week. You know, first thing in the morning when you're most relaxed. You know, the goal is to uh, see blood pressures below one thirty systolic and uh, eighty diastolic. So below. 130 by 80 um, uh, will be ideal at all times. Now, if you have been diagnosed with uh, uh, chronic kidney disease, especially a type that uh, is shown up with uh, loss of protein in the urine protein area, then the goal is more stringent. So less than 125, or 175, uh, blood pressure goal becomes the target. Yeah. And for those that already have this diagnosis, what can they do to stem progress of, of, of the disease? Yeah. 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 Good. Uh, good question. Um. You know, I often tell um people I work with uh, patients that uh, the absolute number almost doesn't matter. I don't want to trivialize it. You know, let's say your kidney function is 40, 45 percent. Um, you can actually live a, a pretty good, decent, normal life with that. You just have to focus on the trajectory, slowing it down to the barest minimum, the lock rate of loss of function, or even halting it, keep it, keeping it there at 40, 45. What can you do? So again. Uh, uh, it, go, it goes back to what are the factors that are driving uh, that CKD, that kidney failure. Is it high blood pressure? Is it high blood pressure? Now let's focus on achieving those goals. Um, you know, we often lay more emphasis on medication. Medications are fine, but medications alone will not do the job. We know lifestyle and environmental factors play a huge role, especially um, in, in our part of the world. Um, you know, what I mean by lifestyle, you know, how stressed are you? Can you avoid stress? Um, uh, make an intentional effort to say, you know what, this is not going to stress me. I will only control what I can control. Um, uh, you know, let's talk about salt. You know, there's salt in almost everything we, we eat. But we could uh, intentionally try to lower our dietary salt intake. You know, the goal that is often given to most patients would be to uh, reduce your dietary salt intake to less than 2,000 milligrams per day. Um, you know, uh, some of us uh, eat a lot of fast foods. You know, so let's make an intentional effort to say, you know, I'm going to curtail the number of times I eat out. Maybe I could cook at home. Maybe I, I will have more control on how much salt goes in that food. 
Okay, so we could control, we could try to address the high blood pressure. We could try to address and treat any underlying, you know, infectious diseases. So, for example, uh, how do we address our malaria? You know, bouts of malaria, do we just go and self-medicate because we know that this uh, regimen works for us, therefore we're going to keep treating it, but is, is it, are you achieving a proper cure? Is it just going to keep coming back? And each time it comes back, it leaves behind a little bit of inflammation, a little bit of scar tissue in the kidneys, and eventually it leads to slow and steady decline. So let's get into the habit of addressing all uh, communicable diseases, diseases. You know, if one has hepatitis, you know, get treated appropriately and, you know, address other conditions. Diabetes is also a silent one. You know, as a matter of fact, globally, you know, most of other parts of the world, diabetes seems to be the number one cause, especially here in the Western world. But back home, it's not. It's number two slash three cause. Yeah, but those who are diabetic, you know, should uh, seek proper control of that. So A1C, hemoglobin A1C, what the goal should be to keep it below 7% if possible. And that uh, at that rate, then chances of the diabetes attacking the kidneys, you know, uh, uh, much less. Therefore, that's one way to avoid, you know, with a slow progression. Um, and then we already talked about, you know, pain pills, you know, let's also try not to take pain pills, you know, like candies, you know, let's uh, take it only when absolutely needed and for the shortest possible uh, period of time that is needed. Yeah, so there, there's a whole lot, you know, in terms of uh, uh, um, lifestyle, addressing the risk factors. Also nutrition, nutrition is a huge one. Um, you know, there are foods that we know put more strain on the kidneys, you know, uh, perhaps more emphasis should be laid on uh, fruits and vegetables. You know, fruits obviously, uh, to the extent that it that does not uh, worsen uh, blood sugar control, diabetes control, that'll be welcome. Uh, in our climes, you know, certain foods that are particularly, uh, I guess, uh, kind to the kidneys promote <laughs> that may promote us uh, a lot of kidney healing will include uh pineapples you know um you know let's see apples well, so pineapples apples uh i would have said blueberries but or strawberries but we don't have that at home uh vegetables um a lot of green leafy vegetables you know would actually be helpful but cabbage is you know particularly rich um rich in antioxidants manganese you know low in potassium low in sodium you know so helpful for kidney kidney um you know, health. Uh, let's see, bell pepper is said to have a lot of uh, antioxidants. Um, and then for some of us who like seafood, so salmon is rich in omega-3 fatty acids, you know, again, they rich types of antioxidants that reduce inflammation in the kidneys. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a whole host of things that one can do to reduce um, the prevalence of uh, chronic kidney disease, prevalence of hypertension and diabetes, and therefore promote good kidney health. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if, if for people mostly our age, I guess we're talking to the audience that's in our age group, would you say there are certain specific blood tests that you would recommend that you get at least once a year? Yeah, um, uh, for age, it makes, uh, I, I would recommend um, complete CBC, complete uh, blood count. Um, I would recommend uh, either BMP, basic metabolic panel, or CMP, complete metabolic panel. BMP or CMP often will show you the electrolytes, sodium, potassium, acid level, bicarbonate, will show you again, serum creatinine or blood creatinine and that EGFR that we talked about earlier. So those two are going to be key in saying, uh, in detecting whether or not you have chronic kidney disease and how it's progressing over time. Um, so those two are key. Um, obviously, we are, for, for guys, you know, we are all in our, you know, early to late 40s. Um, you know, PSA becomes um, also pertinent, prostate-specific antigen, you know, again, checking your prostate health. Um, is it, um, is it uh, elevated? Uh, could it point to a large prostate, which may cause some blockage to urine flow and therefore cause um, post-obstructive uh, kidney disease nephropathy or not. You know, those are simple things that can be addressed. You know, obviously if you're having, if one is having a uh, increased urination, uh, weak, weaker than usual, you're very stream, um, let's see, waking up at night more often to urinate nocturia, um, you know, terminal dribbling towards the end of the urine stream, then, you know, and you're a male, and that could point to perhaps you have a, a large prostate. And if your PSA levels are higher than normal, I think zero, zero to four is the, often the normal range. Then, um, you know, going 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 to see uh, a, a urologist may be, you know, very beneficial. You, there are medications that are known to shrink that prostate enlargement and restore urine flow and uh, health. So that's, that's a quick, easy fix, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, if one has been diagnosed with diabetes, you know, again, and hemoglobin A1C is great. Also, seeing a, an eye doctor annually, if you're diabetic, to make sure that you're not having a diabetic retinopathy or diabetic eye, eye disease. If it's there, you know, that also, again, points to how aggressive the diabetes is or perhaps how not well controlled it is. Therefore, making attempts to prevent such complications will invariably lead to less, um, less chances of developing chronic kidney disease as part of that diabetic manifestation. 
Okay, great, great. Uh, just to point out the pain medications you were talking about were mostly the uh, ibuprofen, the naproxens, the maloxicams, and um, indomethacin, like you mentioned before. Um, yeah. Are, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, all pain medications, are, you know, uh, will cause a certain degree of uh, kidney, kidney um, failure. Uh, but NSAIDs, those, the, 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 this, this one's you call now, uh, particularly notoriously, good pain medications, good pain relieving agents, but slowly but surely they, they, they drop your clinic kidney function. And if you get in, so they, they have lots of people, you know, that travel from home, for example, you know, come see me and, um, you know, you may run a lot of tests, you know, you see the kidney function is low, it's 15. But you can't identify any cause until you start proving into, you know, further into the history. And then they may tell you, oh, yeah, I take, uh, I take uh, indomethacin two times a day, one in the morning to prevent headaches and at night to go to bed or Tylenol PM or, you know, ibuprofen PM again to sleep. Um, and if you do that, I can imagine twice a day for, for years. Wow. That's, yeah. that's, that's asking for trouble. You know, um, <laughs> thinking back, uh, I remember, you know, I was a day student and I would, um, you know, going to try to get to fitting time. Sometimes I would have to take the bus. I, I remember this uh, dog amounts drug agency. They would get on the bus, the agents. You know? yeah, yeah, I remember that too. <laughs> it was much later that I started to think, oh my God, this guy is, it's already related, you know, you're selling these things under fanciful um, trade names, but you are, you're leading, you're contributing to a huge health epidemic. You know, silent one. Yeah. Yeah, they're frying your kidneys. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How? How how is uh, CKD important to cardiovascular health, meaning heart health and blood vessel health? Yeah, there there is a direct correlation. Really, um, we know that uh, one of the biggest mortality factors in in, in kidney disease is cardiovascular, uh, you know, conditions. For example, a lot of people who are on dialysis who have end stage kidney disease, when you know, when unfortunately, um, you know, poor outcomes happen when they die, you know, it's usually from either uncontrolled heart failure, heart failure as a result of that advanced uh, kidney disease. It could be also from uh, lethal heart arrhythmias, so V-fibs, A-fibs, you know, that are uncontrolled. So there's a direct correlation. The most common cause of mortality in people with advanced CKD is really cardiovascular risk factors. Obviously, we've talked about the association of high blood pressure with CKD. Hypertension, if it's gone as far as causing chronic kidney disease, will lead to other, <laughs> other complications like stroke. So there's also an increased incidence of stroke uh, in people with uh, advanced kidney failure, uh, stroke, of, unfortunately, which leaves them incapacitated, debilitated, you know, and uh, just messes up the quality of life and leads to uh, death from other things, you know, aspiration, pneumonia, and things of that nature. So yeah, you see an increased incidence of heart failure, uh, heart arrhythmias, you know, which are both lethal, uh, sudden cardiac arrest, again, uh, directly related to the CKD, strokes, and things of that nature. And obviously the burden from high blood pressure itself. So those two conditions, heart and kidneys, often go hand in hand, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good segue to kind of jump into talking about high blood pressure itself. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, so uh, high blood pressure, oftentimes it's it's defined as uh, blood pressure um, greater than 130 over 80. Um, so anything more than that, uh, it, it, 130 over 80 and leading to uh, end organ damage, so be it a stroke, you know, be it uh, heart failure, um, be it cardiac arrest, be it uh, chronic kidney disease. Um, so you want to prevent those end organ damage, right? So yeah, different stages of hypertension, I won't go into the details, but um, I, just to make it pertinent, you know, um, it's it's prevalent. It's also silent, just like um, CKD we talked about. It's silent, it, you know, it goes on until it causes um, uh, different complications. Um, the, the unfortunate thing is, is, is that an increased incidence and risk um, among people of African descent. You know, there's um, there are lots of uh, studies now known to implicate something called apo lipoprotein, so ApoL1 nephropathy. So ApoL1 gene um, is what um, some of our ancestors in West Africa uh, inherited as a way of nature, sorry, fighting or fighting. Um, or sleeping sickness, trypanosomiasis. So, so, meiosis. so it conferred some mortality benefit in the sense that people who had uh, one or two of that gene were able to survive more of that uh, uh, um, outbreaks of sleeping sickness. Therefore, we were able to pass on more um, uh, progeny moving forward. But now, years later, we find this an association of lipoprotein gene inheritance with increased risk of hypertension, not just hypertension, early onset hypertension, resistant hypertension and different spectrums of chronic kidney disease, right? So uh, what seemed to have helped us, our ancestors, thousands and hundreds of years ago, is now, uh, we are learning, um, becoming a major risk in, uh, in terms of making us more susceptible to, to these conditions. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think once we noticed that, um, you know, there are young members in our family who 
have all of a sudden become hypertensive at, you know, in the 30s or suddenly develop a stroke and die much younger than usual, then we have to suspect, do we have that increased risk for it? And if so, how can we address it? So again, get go back to early diagnosis, checkups, and addressing it. There are lots of good uh, drug classes, medication classes out there to treat hypertension. And, um, you know, diet, lifestyle changes and all that is going to tie into that too. Yeah. So once once, you're di- once one is diagnosed with hypertension, uh, what kind of medications are out there that they can take? Yeah, so generally, um, I use this acronym ABCDE. Um, a, a will be um, angiotensin, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, ACE or ARPS, okay? So the likes of uh, lysinopril, certain, okay? Class B will be better blockers, so Curegor, Cabezolol, Metoprolol, uh, Bisoprolol. Uh, C will be calcium channel blockers, so um, it'll be amlodipine, nifedipine, which is much stronger than amlodipine. Class D will be diuretics, so water pills like, you know, furosemide, also known as Lasix, tarsemide, or, or, or or Bumex, bimetanide, but more commonly hydrochlorotazam, HETZ. And class E will be miscellaneous things like clonidine, um, hydralazine, uh, doxazosin, you know, minoxidil. Uh, but the guidelines um, usually recommend, again, for people of um, for African-Americans or people of black ancestry, generally, um, if it's a stage one or class one hypertension, which by definition is hypertension below 140 over 80, okay, persistently below 140 over 80, not amenable to, you know, modification in lifestyle, then you could get away with treating with just one class. So, you know, because black people are taught to be more salt sensitive, in other words, salt is a major dietary salt intake, is a major driver of, of hypertension loss. Therefore, what's recommended is go with a diuretic. So a little dose of hydrochloroquine, like 12.5, milligrams and you know good lifestyle changes with it could actually get you to go below 180. Okay. If that doesn't work and you progress to stage two hypertension, which again above and 140 or 90, um, then you could add couple a class D, so D with an A or D with a with a C. So the preference is really C and D. So uh, amlodipine, for example, and hydrochloroquine, that can, one can get that in a, in a combination pill, so one pill for two, so Xforge, for example, you know, could combine that, and you, that usually will work. Now, if for some reason there are other medical conditions that necessitate for you to be um, on an, a class A, lysinopril or for example, if you're a diabetic or you have heart failure, um, then you could add class A to that class D. Right, so you could use lysinopril losartan together with a water pill, um, for example, and then there are different combinations, so one of the different three names. Um, so yeah, so the, the preference is usually class D first, water pills, or D and C, um, or you could just combine the D and A if you have other conditions. You know, if one is diabetic with CKD and spilling protein in the urine, then, you know, it's it's it becomes imperative to use, uh, utilize. We know that ACE inhibitors like you know, losartan, brassartan, things of that nature, not only are they put blood pressure lowering agents, but they also s- slow down again the rate of loss of kidney function. So they slow down the trajectory. So it's sort of a double, um, a double benefit. You know, it controls your blood pressure, helps protect your kidneys. Again, keeps you away from dialysis and that keeps you healthy. Yeah. So for people who are more resistant, you know, and then they may require um, three blood pressure medicines. Uh, smart fact, resistant hypertension is defined as hypertension requiring three blood pressure medications, including a diuretic. So if one is on a lysinopril, losartan, nifedipine, you know, and and uh, and requires hydrochloroquine, you know, that's really resistant hypertension. You know, so three agents just to get to go. Um, the one thing that we also notice is. Um, a lot of folks that have this resistant hypertension tend to do well with spironolactone, you know, which is in class E. It's a weak water pill, but it works by other mechanisms to achieve better blood, blood pressure control. Yeah, but you know, generally, um, you get you you the, you get to a point where you're adding medications and you know you're not achieving the goal. You know, you what you're getting instead is a lot of side effects um, from those medications. You know, people oftentimes, for example, talk about. Um, um, males that decrease the libido, um, you know, you know, from class B medicines, for example, you know, and so you want people to have a good quality of life uh, without, you know, the risk factors of the diseases. And so, you know, it just makes and match, you know, in lifestyle to reduce pill burden so one who live well. And, and this has to be done in, with guidance from a medical professional. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I know at home, you know, you could just walk up to the neighborhood drugstore and, and a chemist that's still call and tell them to mix medicine for you. Um, that's risky. It's 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 easy to do. It's oftentimes affordable, but it's it's risky. Many fronts, they don't have the, 
you know, the rights, it's not a right setting to discuss with you back and forth what you're doing. There's no documentation anywhere that this is what works and this is a dosage. You're just taking on the go. Uh, oftentimes you run out of your <laughs> little supply and then you go untreated. And for years and then the blood pressure hits you hard, causes you stroke and a few other things. Yeah, and I would absolutely advocate this, you know, being uh, under the guidance of, you know, either one's primary doctor, um, you know, or if you want to go to specialists, you know, like a nephrologist, you know, even better. Uh, if you want to see a cardiologist, also, you know, totally welcome. Uh, but it, it has to be done under guidance. Yeah. One thing I also encourage people to do is to uh, make it a dialogue. Don't let it be just, oh, you come to a healthcare professional, they give you the right, scribble something, tell you, go get this in the pharmacy and go home, right? No, ask them questions, you know, feel free. It's part of that healthcare advocacy, you know. Uh, you are going to be your own best advocate. Ask why. So, why class? First of all, what kind of medicine is it? You know, how does it work? What are the side effects? You know, what do I expect from it? You know, um, how can I, you know, avoid this or that? You know, um, you know, things of that nature. So, ask questions. Um, I know you may be frowned upon. Um, in a lot of settings at home, but I'm hoping that over time culture will change and shift. I'm hoping that, you know, people get to realize that health is wealth and who best to fight for your own health than you. You know, so ask this better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose it's also important to know that when you're on those medications, you need to get your blood checked as well every, um, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. People who uh, have kidney disease and CKD and who often need to be on, on an ACE or ARB, for example, like sinopromosartan, we know there's an increased risk of hyperkalemia, high potassium levels. Um, so you do need to check your blood work, you know, at least twice a year, depending on what stage you are, or sometimes more often. Uh, not only that, there are going to be foods that you shouldn't uh, indulge in a lot. You know, a lot of our tropical foods, mangoes, bananas, um, uh, are going to be high sources, high and rich sources of potassium. So we shouldn't probably indulge in it as any other person would. You know, even things like uh, peanuts, granuts, fried granuts. Uh, you know, you can't eat it anyhow anymore. Um, yeah. So again, it's it's not about depriving anybody of the, the you know the good things around. It's about being smarter, knowing that in what portion you could you could still have those bananas and, and peanuts, uh, but maybe not every day, not handfuls of it. You know, um, uh, you know, one can still eat pineapples or apples, like we talked about. You know, yeah. So there are there are foods that we know cause high potassium levels. So if you're on a certain class of medicine that also puts you at risk for high potassium levels, then it's a no-brainer not to indulge in some of those foods. Again, moderation is key. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, uh, the one thing I just wanted to mention, because this happened to me, actually happened to my mom. She was taking lisinopril and then one day she just sent me a picture of her lips swollen. And um, <laughs> I just told that come off the medication. I, I think this is more common in black people, right? This thing that happens, this phenomenon. Yes. Yes. It's described as angioedema. Um, and anaphylaxis, you know, so like Sinopril, uh, ACE inhibitors generally, um, there is quite an uh, incidence of uh, angioedema, so sudden swelling of the lips, even after you've been on it for, you could be on it for years and all of a sudden you wake up, uh, lips are swollen, throat is swollen, you can't swallow, you know, you're constantly clearing your throat, or you may develop cough, dry cough, cough that just is there nagging, it doesn't go away, you try, you know, the usual cough syrups, you know, you gaggle with, you know, or whatever solution you want to gaggle with, um, and it's still there, you know, that one we should also think, oh, is this, could this be coming from our medications? Yeah, so ACE inhibitors, life improve, um, often uh, notorious for that. Um, we also get a condition where you are switched from, for example, from lysinopril to losart, and then the same thing happen. If that happens with both of those classes, then, you know, it should be marked anywhere in your uh, chart, medical chart, that you are allergic to that. And we should also, keep, you know, just take notes because, you know, a lot of places you may not have EHR, electronic health records. So if you go to a provider in a different part of the country, they may not know that, but you know, that's where we have to say, oh, I can't have this. Um, yeah, because those things could be pretty life-threatening. Yeah. So medication is one part of it, and then lifestyle modification, and you mentioned it a few times. And some people think, okay, exercise, does that mean I have to go out and run on the treadmill at run like 200 miles, or can I just, can I just do working or what kind of exercise is beneficial? And then what, what primarily do you need to cut down in your diet to help with blood pressure control? Yeah, regarding exercise, um, just something as little as 30 minutes of brisk walking three times a day, I mean, three times a week, um, is actually sufficient enough. Uh, there was a recent study, I think BBC uh, talked about it, you know, 11 minutes of brisk walking three times a week is enough to get your heart rate up, is enough to, to suffice for cardiovascular, you know, uh, walkout. Um, you know, 11 minutes obviously is small, um, you know, but it's, 
it's for some people that don't want to exercise entirely. So something that's ludicrous is limit. But yeah, um, um, I know in, in residency, we're all told that 30 minutes, three to five times, 30 minutes of slow or brisk walking, three to five times a week actually suffices, you know, because well, frankly, we are in different stages of health. There are some people who have arthritis, osteoarthritis, knees, and can't be, even if they want to run or do something more rigorous, they are not able to do that. So for them, slow paced walking or brisk walking, if they can, you know, a few times a week will we'll do. Uh, for others who are in a better shape, um, if you want to run outside, that's, that's great, you know, um, maybe, I don't know, a mile or two, twice a week will do early in the morning um, for you know us young folks who some of us like to go to the gym, um, you know, a little bit of cardio in the gym, you know, run on a treadmill, uh, we'll do, you know, on, on a bike, you know, also great. Um, any form of exercise that involves, you know, uh, cardiovascular, um, you know, activity will, will essentially goes a long way. Exercise actually um, is a known, uh, is, is very known to drop blood pressure. So I often tell people that if you get on a regular exercise routine, you derive the, as, almost, as much benefit as an extra blood pressure agent. Because after exercise, we know systolic blood pressure can easily drop, easily by up to three to five points. That's totally the same too. So that's almost like an extra benefit from just one class of agents alone. Um, regarding uh, diets, you know, again, Salt, you know, the key is to reduce dietary salt intake. Magic number is less than 2,000 milligrams. We may ask, what does that translate to practically? That's about, uh, about it. I think, a tablespoonful of salt a day. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but it's doable. We can train our taste buds, you know. Um, just within two weeks, this again, this is easier said than done, but within two weeks of being on a reduced salt, regimen and diet the food is going to taste practically the same you could because you know maybe spice it up with other things you know suya you know suya sauce you know for example um over here i usually tell people to buy mrs dash at home i i don't know what i would recommend but i'm sure there are lots of uh, spices one can use um without again using uh, those ones that could be uh health harmful for the kidneys you know the maggies and nose uh, maybe one uses that uh, in moderation would be okay um so yeah um, re- exercise, reduce salt intake, reduce calorie, excessive calories, you know, so maybe go for wheat, wheat instead of uh, corn, for example, processed corn, you know, for those who are diabetics, you know, who, um, you know, if you're diabetic, what you want to do is to, you want to avoid the sharp peaks in blood glucose levels, you know, so something like wheat, you know, with a lot of fiber in it will not lead to those peaks and, you know, be beneficial overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the questions I've been asked before in the past is when I do these things, when I, you know, get on the diet, when I'm exercising and my blood pressure gets better, can I come off my blood pressure medication? Hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's often uh, tricky, but the goal is, again, reduce, the goal of managing and treating such conditions is one of them is to reduce pill bottom, right? So if one gets on a, on a regular exercise and diet regimen and achieves good outcomes, you know, weight loss, significant weight loss, that reduces uh, you know, the severity of high blood pressure, then why not? You know, you could come off of the pill. Again, it's not coming off and just letting, you know, things be. You, you have to make sure that if you come off of it, still keep, keep uh, that heightened state of uh, surveillance, you know, check your blood pressures. If you're achieving that goal, then if you're on target, then you absolutely don't need that, you know, that extra pill. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's highly possible not to have to take as many uh, pills, um, again, by using some of this uh, healthy lifestyle. And, and some people will say, well, I'm not, I'm not fat, I'm not obese, so to speak, in the medical term, and I'm otherwise a healthy person, but why is it I have high blood pressure like this? Um, why do I have to take medication? Yeah, it's because uh, there are, you know, high blood pressure, hypertension is often multifactorial. So there are, there's the genetic component, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, apolipoprotein, apol one gene inheritance, that can even without you being diabetic, even without be, you being obese, so then you can still be at risk for high blood pressure. Not, not just at risk, but even diagnosed at a much earlier stage. I mean, uh, uh, much earlier age, you know, in the 30s. Right? So there's the genetic components of hypertension. Um, yeah, oftentimes, it's, you know, we make the association that you have to be obese, you have to be diabetic, or you have to be older to be hypertensive. No, those things um, are not mutually exclusive. You could still have it at a younger age. Yeah, so if... It takes it takes education. It takes um takes uh, some research, you know, even for those people to understand. Yes, you know, this is what it is, and uh, I can control it by doing some of the things we talked about. Okay, all right. Thank you for that. Um, the, so you know, some people do all this, and then you know, still they get to a point where their kidneys 
shut down and they're no longer functioning. And then you start having conversations about dialysis. What kind of conversations would you have with your patient about dialysis? And then, um, and also about transplant as an option. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy conversation. Um, but oftentimes the way I, I, br- I bring up the topic is I use dialysis as a bridge, as a bridge to go from one side of the river to the other. On the other side, on the one side where you are is, you know, you know, advanced kidney failure, um, with all, all the associated symptoms. But on the other side is, you know, getting a transplant possibly, you know, um, so yeah, dialysis is just a trans, just to, to get it from one side to the other. Um, it's, it's, it requires a lot of lifestyle changes. It's, it's not easy. It's, 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 it's pretty, um, it's pretty rigorous. You know, there are different forms of dialysis. First of all, I, I, we talk about what, what their life is like. Are they fully functional? Are they working? You know, how much time do they prefer to, or do they want to spend with their families? You know, if they are younger, physically able, good family support, uh, enjoy spending time with their family. I always preach home, home modalities. So dialysis modalities that you could do at home. So preferably peritoneal dialysis, PD, you know, where one has a catheter in the belly, doesn't quite go into the stomach, but it, it goes into the peritoneal cavity. Okay. Um, you could do this at home while you're sleeping in the comfort of your own. You are in control. You're not exposed to anybody uh, outside there. Um, you know, of late with COVID, you know, you know, a lot of increased mortality among dialysis, hemodialysis patients who were going to clinics. You know, they just, a lot of them died here. Yeah. So these are some of the benefits of doing PD at home. You know, obviously in our environment in low to middle income countries in Nigeria, I, I don't, I don't think that we have that modality, which is unfortunate because India, even rural India, there's high penetrance of of. Uh, even manual peritoneal dialysis, where one just hangs a bag of fluid uh, on a pole, it drains, you know, you get, it gets into your peritoneal cavity, you, you, you disconnect, go about your business, maybe go to a farm, go in anywhere else. Four hours later, you come back, you, disc- you, you drain that fluid, you would have done one dialysis treatment, then you fill it up again. So even the manual, we're not even talking about it, the CCP, the continuous cyclic peritoneal dialysis that requires a machine, which obviously that requires a constant power. So peritoneal dialysis is always my preferred uh, option, modality. If that can be done, there is also whole hemodialysis. Again, like hemodialysis, but done at home, small daily treatment sessions, more physiologic, great for blood pressure control, great for electrolyte, especially phosphorus control, uh, great for volume control. You could, so again, with HHD home hemodialysis and PD, you could tra- you know, again, travel anywhere within the continental US, or maybe even the Caribbean, you know, just ship your machine go over there, you know, go on vacation, still without any interruption. Obviously those two options will not be available at home. So most people at home will have just uh, hemodialysis. Hemodialysis, unfortunately, it's extremely um, expensive, unaffordable, one could actually say. I think like conservative estimates, you know, each treatment maybe a few years ago was averaging 50 to 60,000. Um, I had sometimes 100,000, can you, can you imagine? You know, if you, we know that most hemodialysis patients require at least three treatments per week. You know, um, it's unaffordable, it's huge mind blowing amounts, you know, even the economy, you know, for this to be sustained, if the government was subsidizing it, it's, it's, it's going to bring us to our knees. So it's really not an option. It's really not an option. So again, back to prevention, 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 because we know the alternative, you know, is I'm hoping things will change. The alternative is not affordable right now. Now, transplantation could be great. You know, I, I think we have centers in the Luth, for example, even UNN, you know, should have enough expertise and having enough expertise is one thing, but maybe not, not uh, the experience to do it. But there are, we have notable healthcare institutions that should be able to offer, you know, simple transplantations, you know, where you get either, you know, obviously yeah, there's been controversy now. We know there's a senator that got dragged into, you know, doing things that shouldn't be done. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but these things are highly regulated. You know, there are ways of doing this. You know, you can still get a transplant. You know, kidney transplant from a healthy donor, or even from a deceased donor, if we have the registry back home where a, yeah, a kidney is harvested from somebody who is deceased. If it's in good condition, you know, you get a match somewhere. You know, somebody needing transplant, and then you know that person gets a new lease of life, gets back. You know, is able to get to the his or her productive best. You know, gets back to the loved ones. Yeah. So again. Hemodialysis, I mean, dialysis or, or transplantation, you know, will be the definitive treatment for end stage kidney disease. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, there's some issues that people need to know before they go into transplant that they need to be on certain medications for the, for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anti rejection medications, you know, um, you know, most these these organs are foreign to our body. So our immune system uh, is going to want to, again, uh, reject them, you know, fight them. They're seen as foreign. But you take these medicines that quieten, uh, that uh, you know, attack by our immune system um, to sort of 
stop recognizing that fast form. So it could actually stay in you and, and work as a normal kidney. Um, uh, the downside to those anti-rejection medications is obviously because they are fighting and suppressing immunity, they make you prone to picking up infections around, you know, so one has to be careful, you know, not to expose themselves, but people can live normally, you know, um, even on those anti-rejection medications. But oftentimes I get asked, you know, am I going to have to take this uh, five or six pills for the rest of my life? Actually, the, the number of pills dwindles over time. You know, usually the, within the first six months, you know, they cut off at least two of them. So it boils down to maybe three, either a steroid, prednisone, or an anti-metabolite like mycophenolate, or a CNI like tacrolimus or cyclosporin. But eventually over time, when you're two, three, four years out, you may, may actually boil down to just two or three. And most people do just well. But again, you will need surveillance. You know, you need lab checks, you know, every so often. Um, you know, one thing that... Um, I know, you know, we've come across people that have gone to medical tourism and most mostly to Southeast Asia, India, Bangladesh, you know, it, it's good to do those things, but it's it's leading to a huge drain in resources, you know. Yeah. First of all, we're not developing the local expertise. It should have been done at home if it's fully regulated and trusted. Um, it will be much cheaper um, and instead of just going abroad and doing it. And most times, if it's done that way, you cannot guarantee what kind of... Uh, kidney you got you know is it what is it is it a standard criteria kidney a cd or is it an expanded criteria um uh, what was the match what was the mismatch you know i've talked to a few people that have gone not not to cast a shadow on that i think most most cases go well but there are people that are just left in the dark as to what quality of kidney they they, they gotten and they come back and things don't work out too well you know it's a shame yeah i've heard stories too um i think one demographic we just didn't talk much about important to touch on uh, are pregnant women yeah, I mentioned in, in that case, is there like a special or a different approach to 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 that? And, you know, um, what kind of things should pregnant women particularly worry about, especially coming towards the end of their, their third trimester or just in general during the third trimester? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they are indeed a special population. Um, pregnancy and, and kidney disease, pregnancy and hypertension uh, do not go well together. Um, one condition to look out for is preeclampsia, where if you are at least 20 weeks pregnant, if blood pressure is high and you're seeing evidence of uh, swelling on the legs or protein in the urine, then that's, that should trigger alarms. You should be seeing your high-risk OBGYN um, to, again, monitor your blood pressure, again, monitor and train the amount of protein you're spilling in the urine. Um, uh, preeclampsia is real. It increases the chances of uh, poor pregnancy outcomes. It uh, um, reduced, re uh, I guess, what is it called? Reduced fetal growth. Um, it could even uh, cause uh, lack of weak, appropriate weak gene by fetus. It could re increase the maternal mortality in, in itself. It could lead to loss of the pregnancy by itself. Yeah. Um, but the good news is, you know, with careful monitoring, it can be well managed. You know, um, there are classes of medicines that are known to work just fine in pregnancy. Uh, class C, for example, nifedipin is uh, one of those go-to agents to to use. Uh, Hydralazine uh, also often is well tolerated. Um, even water pills too. Uh, to some degree, uh, could also be be, be used. Um, yeah, so um, pregnancy and hypertension uh, it deserves extra monitoring, special care. Um, most cases, you know, you could see the pregnancy two term or close to term. Um, but if if it doesn't work out, if it's going to cost the life of the mother, then you know some strong, difficult decisions may have to be taken. Okay. Um, also, you also get the risk of having. So you could start out. Um, start out, so let's let's differentiate chronic hypertension. Um, so you have chronic pre-existing hypertension, then you get pregnant, and then that may sometimes worsen. Okay, so that's one thing it can be controlled using those medications we talked about. Or you could develop new onset hypertension after week twenty of of, of pregnancy with proteinuria. That's called uh, you know preeclampsia. Uh, pregnancy used to be called PIH, pregnancy-induced hypertension. Um, now those two entities are different. What we also notice is after that pregnancy, you know, let's say you get to turn successfully, you may develop uh, new onset uh, uh, CKD, right? So you've had this complicated pregnancy, thank God baby arrives safely, and mom is okay, but then, you know, months later, you realize that EGFR is no longer, you know, normal, it's, you know, maybe 72, you know, maybe a month or a few years later, it mysteriously just drops to 56, you know. So there's also that, that uh, occurrence and we have to be vigilant. Uh, you know, it's, no, it's a known entity. We have to be vigilant. We have to treat it again as CKD um, to prevent that from eventually leading to uh, on, uh, kidney failure. 
um, requiring dialysis. Yeah, so uh, the special class, yeah, but um, I feel like we need a lot of education um, on at the population level. You know, public health, you know, is key um, about CKD, about hypertension, about um, the risk of hypertension with pregnancy and the long-term signaling of, of, of that. Yeah, yeah, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for for all this valuable information. I hope it'll be useful to someone out there. Um, any any last bits, any last words um, for folks, especially at home, as to what to do um, in terms of you know managing these issues if they're dealing with it or uh, things they can do to just just a summary of things they can do to prevent prevent it. Uh, yeah, this has been a great uh, great talk. Thank you, Chip. Uh, I feel like we shared quite a bit. Um, last words will be uh, chronic kidney disease and hypertension um, is real. It is a silent epidemic uh, that deserves a lot more attention. Um, a, a lot of education is needed. Uh, uh, but but the good news is, you know, with early diagnosis, with proper management, we could uh, trunk it or slow down the trajectory. We could manage it. We could live. You know, a happy life uh, with it. Uh, it just requires concerted effort from us, changing our usual ways. You know, uh, embracing healthy um, lifestyle changes, um, and uh, you know, some of uh, doing things differently. Maybe being uh, extra careful to avoid um, pain, excessive pain pills, NSAIDs in particular. Avoid. Um, one thing we did not talk about is uh, concoctions. You know, a lot of us. Um, you know depending on the education level, believe in um, self-medicating with herbal preparations, you know. Uh, it's claimed that this does that or this does that, you know. I think we should be a little bit more careful not to readily uh, take such things and be so callable. We know that a lot of um, herbs out there uh, are known to cause CKD. One thing we did not talk about is uh, the incidence of, um, I guess, uh, Aristolochia species uh, causing Aristolochic acid nephropathy AAN. Um, again, chronic insidious drop in kidney function um, just from herbal medications, you know, or sometimes it's more acute, you know, for example, the people that use certain agents, you know, again, it kills malaria, it kills typhoid, but then you end up with calcium oxalate nephropathy, which leads to a rather acute drop in kidney function. So again, moving away from some of these things, you know, I know it's layering to want to go natural, but in going natural, we should be smart about it. There are things that have not been tested and trusted, so we should not fall for that. And lastly, you know, it's hot in our environment, our part of the world. We should drink enough water. You know, uh, at least at least two liters of water, pure water. Um, um, by that I mean, <laughs> real good quality water. Uh, to stay hydrated, staying hydrated. You know, is one of the best ways one could promote kidney health. One could reduce the incidence of kidney stones. You know, which we didn't even talk about. Uh, but you know, it deserves a time of its own. Um, so yeah, things of that nature. Uh, we, I'm, I'm sure we can uh, get ahead of the curve and prevent. A lot of this burden transpiring and out of control. Yeah, true talk. Yeah, yeah, you have it. Um, tidbits you need. Um, uh, I wish our healthcare system was way better than it is right now. Um, that will help tremendously in preventing and managing these chronic illnesses. Um, but thank you, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Spina. I appreciate the, the time and uh, and all the questions. 